Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. In this episode, we are going to talk about the importance of water safety for infants. My guest grew up a military brat, but stayed in one place long enough to earn a degree in business marketing and then spent over a decade working in live events. After experiencing a personal tragedy and a very scary family water incident, she decided to change career paths and now spends her time and efforts educating parents about infant water safety and swim instruction. Melissa Take, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm curious to learn because that's a very big career shift, but I don't want to jump right into that. I want to start at the beginning. Where are you from originally? I was born in Sacramento. Oh, Sacramento. What was it like growing up in Sacramento? I wouldn't know because I was there for maybe a couple of years that I don't remember. And then we moved to Japan. Oh, what was it like growing up in Japan? I remember the yen store and the cherry blossom trees. Wait, how long were you there for? I was there for three years. Oh, from what age to what age? From three to six. Oh, okay. So you don't remember a ton. Mm -mm. Do you speak any Japanese? No, I can count to 10, but I learned that later in life. So it doesn't get me anywhere. Mm -hmm. I know. Where'd you go from Japan? Then we moved to Panama. How was Panama? I mean, now you're a little bit older, so you're... Yeah, so we were there two years. Loved Panama. Everything that I can remember was amazing. And from there, we went to the Air Force Academy oh. in Colorado Springs. Wait a second. This is for your dad. Your dad was in the Air Force. He was in the Air Force, yes. So is Japan and Panama already Air Force? No. Both of them were um, Air Force bases. Yeah, they were Air Force bases. Okay. And then you went to Air Force Academy and stayed there for a while? Stayed there for four years and then moved to Hawaii, Oahu. What? For another four years. Yes, I know. I always wonder, what's it like as a kid, like in such developmental stages of life, what's it like to move to a new place all of a sudden over and over again? Were you always as like amazingly social as you are now? Yeah. So I think I had to be. And honestly, I think everything from my younger childhood and everything because of the Air Force got me to where I am today in terms of my career path and where I went. Uh, Developmentally, you know, you look back and you think, oh my gosh, there are issues. There are abandonment issues and I can't hold on to a friend because I'm going to move away. But in the end, when I look back at it, it's all the experience that I got of the people and cultures. And I've been on a plane more times than probably someone who's 80 years old. And I love it. I love looking back and knowing that I have that under my belt. Okay, so a few things. First of all, I wish I was a military family because I can't hold on to friends, but I have no excuse. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. Um, Number two is, do you still have friends from each of these places? Like, have you stayed in touch with people? I have one friend. Actually, I'll say two. So I have one friend from when we were 10 years old, third grade, so 10 years old. And it's been 30 plus years now that we've been in touch. And then I have my wife, who I met when we were 16. Oh, wow. 16. Hold on one second. You guys have us outdone. We were 18 and 20. Yeah. But we weren't technically together, and that's a whole other story. So you and your wife beat us because you were together since you were younger. 16 where? You met where? South Carolina. Sumter, South Carolina. And what were you each doing there? 
So we were in high school. My dad was stationed there. Her parents were retired Air Force there. Oh, Air Force, Air Force. Air Force, Air Force. And uh, we were there for two years. And then I moved back to California and stayed in California. Wait, where did you go after high school? So I did a freshman year in Hawaii, sophomore, junior year in South Carolina, and my senior year here in California. And then I just stayed in California since. Okay. And then you went for a degree after? Yeah. Bachelor of Science in Business and Marketing at Cal Poly Pomona. Ooh, Cal Poly Pomona. That's fun to say. (laughs) And business marketing, did you choose that because you have a particular interest in that area? I wanted to go into advertising. I wanted to be the person that placed products on the shelves and decided what those advertising campaigns were going to be. And I thought I was never going to get into sales. My family tried to push me into sales and I said, no, I'm not doing it. And then lo and behold, I end up in media sales after (laughs) graduated. And I loved it, but it was boring. It was redundant and I needed something different. And so that's how I got into events. I took a career change and a much lower salary base than I had originally for three years and got into events, which is what I loved. Yeah, events, I mean, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. What kind of events are we talking about? So I catered uh, under Wolfgang Puck Catering. That's where I started. Oh, small, unknown. (laughs) Small and unknown, no one knows them, you know. So like um, all kind of personal events and business events or? Personal business, work the Oscars. Yeah. I've heard of that one. Yep. That, yeah. All of it. Small dinner parties of 10 people up to thousand person seated dinners. Wow. So. But events, you know, I have a very rich past in terms of jobs that I've worked. I used to work in catering. Events are like high pressure. Very stressful. Yes. And you're working all the time, just 24 seven, because, you know, everyone's event is the most important and that's how you have to take it. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could have done that long term. Like you did it for 13 years. I think I would have passed out. Did it for 13 years. Yeah. And was going to continue doing it. Yeah. But things change. So you said that you and your wife kind of met at 16, but weren't together. When did you really bring it together? In 2005. So we met in 96, 2005, we were engaged. 2008, we got married on October 24th before Prop 8 passed. We were grandfathered into the same-sex marriage, and we've been married ever since. You met in 96. Mm -hmm. is the year we got married. Yeah. My wife and I. Yeah. That's crazy. We we were together for a couple of years before that, but I was like, wait a second, 96? That rings a bell. (laughs) So when you guys got married from the beginning, were you planning on having a family? Yes. I always want to be pregnant. That was my goal in life. Is really? To have yes. I wanted six kids. She wanted two. So I said, let's compromise at four. That was the compromise. I see. How many siblings do you each have? I'm the second of four girls and she has an older brother and that's it. Oh, so... You were each sticking kind of towards your comfort zone. Six is a big number today. Like, you don't see a lot of families that have six kids. I mean, the fact that we want to have a fourth and people are like, you want what? Why? (laughs) Like, I want more than one. I'm like, I can't have only children. Like, that's just not, you know, that's not our thing. So Yeah, I mean, we have four and people always say it's such a big family. I'm like, no, you know, in my my community, in the Orthodox Jewish community, we kind of have a smaller family. That's the truth. So, I mean, there are people with literally dozens of kids. They drive uh, passenger vans, like the kind you would take to the airport. Yes. 
So, um, you know, it's another way to go. How was your first pregnancy and your birth? So my very first pregnancy was a miscarriage at six weeks. Oui. And then we had our daughter, Malin, and we got pregnant with her through IUI. And she was good. They induced me because they thought that she was intrauterine growth restriction and wasn't growing inside me. At 38 weeks, she was four pounds, 11 ounces, but she was a strong little girl and didn't end up in the NICU or anything. She was healthy. Did they figure out why she was IUGR? No, I think what ended up happening was it's just in our genetics. My mom had all small babies. My sister has had small babies and I just have small babies. So So she was proportional, Mm -hmm. just small. Yeah. And we threw a bunch of terms out. IUI is intrauterine insemination. Yes. And IUGR, intrauterine growth retardation. I always say growth restriction. I think some of the medical terms are pretty harsh. Yes. Try to change them up a little. Great. So you got induced and you had a good induction? Had a good induction. I mean, it's 42 hours. You know, I was hoping to do like a whole natural thing. And after 18 hours of Pitocin, I'm like, no, I need an epidural. So I had an epidural and it was a slow low progress, but she finally came and it was good. I had my vaginal birth. How soon after that did you go for another one? So we actually tried when she was a year old. And in that time I had had what I thought were three more miscarriages. I had actually had a miscarriage and two blighted ovums. And for people who don't know what a blighted ovum is, your body thinks it's pregnant, but when you go in for that heartbeat ultrasound, it's an empty sac. So you basically can choose to have a DNC or miscarry it naturally. I decided I didn't want a DNC to mess with anything going on inside my uterus. And I ended up having just miscarried it naturally. And it, my body felt it was pregnant for 12 weeks. So for an additional four weeks, I felt pregnant until it miscarried. So were those also IOIs? Yes. They were all IUIs. Wow. So you did a lot of them. Yeah. And my body loves being pregnant, apparently. It just doesn't always hold on. Right. Um, so one was a miscarriage, meaning you saw heartbeat? No, so that one was that one was a six-week. Oh, six-week. Yeah. And then two blighted ovums. Yes. Okay. And then? And then we got pregnant through another IUI. And with, how old was Malin then? She was three and a half at that point. Okay. So this is two and a half years in between until you're pregnant again. Yes. Um, And how was that pregnancy? The pregnancy was good until the 20-week ultrasound, the anatomy scan, and they found heart defects. They found what they thought was a coarctation of the aorta and a ventricular septal defect. And we were then sent directly to the pediatric cardiologist at UCLA And he confirmed it and they watched us very closely. And he said, of all the heart defects, these are kind of the best ones to have. They're the most successful in terms of surgeries. And we thought, okay, great. You know, we were very hopeful. We started searching for pediatric cardiologists. We're looking at CHLA and long story short, because there's a lot of in between, but we ended up having to do a scheduled C-section because they didn't think that she was going to be able to survive a vaginal birth. And that was at 35 and a half weeks that they did the C-section and she was actually four pounds. So she ended up in the NICU at Cedars and we had a group of amazing doctors and nurses 
In the end, she was actually born on December 21st, three years ago today. So today is her birthday, which is why I thought it apropos oh, that wow. I podcast. If, it, if I get emotional, excuse me, but yeah, it's been an interesting day. It's a little crazy because we've been talking about doing this for a while. And it just uh, randomly came out on this day, or maybe not randomly. Not randomly. Uh, let's do this. Uh, so she was in the NICU. It's kind of where we left it, right? Mm-hmm. Let's take a little break and come right back and hear the rest of that story. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Melissa Tag. I mean, it's got to be just that moment. My heart is always pounding when we go in for that structural ultrasound. It just feels like the biggest test ever. Like, you just want everything to be okay. And uh, you guys had already been through a lot. And to get that news about a cardiac defect must have been scary. It was so scary. And I should say this. When we did the 20-week ultrasound with Malin, our oldest they found an echogenic bowel. And so they thought that there might be some chromosomal issue. And we did it further testing, just blood tests, and everything came back okay. So that 20-week ultrasound always got me. And when we went in for this one, like I could tell from the sonographer, I'm like, something's wrong. And she's not saying it. It took a really long time. And the doctor came in, she told us, and I just started crying because I just knew. So when she was born... And when the cardiologist had told us, okay, these are are like the great kind of heart defects to have. We were very hopeful. Like we didn't think anything of it. And when she was born and all was okay and everything was going okay. And then the doctor said, you know, she's showing signs that she's going to need surgery earlier than we thought. We had to make a choice. Do we go to CHLA to a surgeon that we hadn't talked to or knew? Or do we go to Stanford where they have the best surgeon that does these heart surgeries? And his name is Dr. Frank Hanley up at Lucille Packard uh, Stanford Hospital. And he took her and worked on her little dime-sized heart and repaired it. And it was very strong. Cut to us. How did we even get there? How did we get up to Stanford? So they, she was transported via plane, I believe it was. Neither of us were allowed to be on the plane with her, but my wife flew up before me because we had to figure out plans for Malin back Mm -hmm. here. And I just had a C-section. So I was still in the hospital. I hadn't been discharged yet. And I ended up going up there a couple days after, like the day before she was going into surgery. And that whole point of sending your child a newborn at this point, she was six days old going into surgery is just something you don't get past. You know, your child is getting put under, she's sedated and you're just hoping she survives it. I mean, being under and and being brought back. 
let alone the surgery itself. So I believe they said it was going to be a few hours and it ended up being an additional like three or four. So we were just sweating, wondering like when we get the phone calls, everything okay. Finally, we did. We met with the doctor. Everything was okay. She was moved to the cardiovascular unit up in the ICU there. And we ended up living there for 10 weeks because she could not hold on to any fluids and her lymphatic system was compromised. So anything that was going in was coming out and they couldn't stop it and they didn't know what it was. And as we started doing more research into it and they were talking to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because they deal with lymphatic system, we learned that she has this very rare disease that's mainly found in dogs and it's called lymphangiectasia and it's rarely found in humans. So what does she, that mean is happening? It means that their lymphatic system is just draining all over. So there's just holes all over and nothing is staying in. So they're very immunocompromised because they're not holding on to any food. I mean, we would have to put like blood in her. We did transfusions. I mean, everything to try to get her to grow. And she had a couple infections. The first infection, she became septic and the doctor said, you know, if she survives this, we're going to have to wait and see what happens next because we don't know. And she survived that weekend. We actually were Catholic. So we had her baptized because we weren't sure. And those were like the longest two days. And then she survived for another month. And towards the end, her organs just started shutting down. She got another infection and she just wasn't turning for the better. And at that point, we kind of already knew what is a life for her because there was no stopping these fluids coming out of her. There's no so, treatment for that. There was no treatment. Like they had tried a treatment that had happened before on other babies that had worked, but what their uh, lymphangiectasia wasn't as profuse. Hers was just profuse. Everywhere. So everywhere. So February 28th, 2018 is when we lost her. And um, to say goodbye to your child is, so unimaginable, I think, for so many parents that you just never, you don't get past it. You know, we still grieve and um, people still ask, when are you going to be over it? And we say, you're never over it. You move through it. And every day it's, you don't know, you don't know what to expect. It could be a good day. It could be a bad day. I'm sorry. And um, I just hope that her memory is a blessing for you. And I know that the work that you're doing now is, you know, with her spirit and mind. I also wonder, because at that point, Malin was already four and a half years old. She turned four February 12th while we were up there. So we celebrated her birthday up in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. So that must have been really challenging for her because she's aware enough. She was definitely aware and it was kind of amazing. And I think that was one of the blessings we got, especially after meeting so many parents who had kids and they were going through the same thing and their kids couldn't be with them. We had Malin, we chose to have her up there with us. And we stayed at the Ronald McDonald House, which is an amazing charity, just an amazing organization that I didn't even know what they did until we had to use them. And they take in families whose children are sick and they're usually right next to a hospital. So you can be right there with your child and not incur the expenses of hotels for an endless amount of time. We thought we were going up there for a week and she would be back down to LA. That was not the case. We were up there for 10 weeks. So 
it would have been expensive paying for a hotel, but we stayed at Ronald McDonald house and Malin was able to be in the hospital room with us. And it was cute because every morning we'd go in, one of us would always stay at the hospital overnight. So we'd take turns and the other one would bring Malin the next day. And whenever she came in the room, it was like Adeline's eyes would open up and she'd be looking around for this voice that she heard every time. It's like she knew who she was. And Malin would read books to her and she would sing. We'd all sing to her. And even to this day, Malin has a relationship with her that even I don't understand. There's such a connection and she talks about her and she misses her. And, you know, we speak very openly about it in our house. Nothing's a secret and no question is taboo. We're very open about death with her because she was with us through it all. And she saw it and she sees us crying and she wants to know why. So it's definitely going to shape her life. You know, it's very powerful the way the kids interact with other kids, even babies. It's kind of amazing to watch sometimes. And she clearly developed a close relationship. Um, Speaking of babies, you did have another baby. We did have another baby. You know, just because I think God just likes to laugh at us. We had this baby on May 1st of this year (laughs) in the beginning of this crazy pandemic. So, you know, as I wanted my all natural birth and, you know, at the hospital with a doula this time, I didn't get my doula. I got her virtually. Kaden is her name and she's now seven and a half months and she's a healthy little darling and we love her to death. And for that pregnancy, no complications? No complications. She was my biggest baby. She was seven pounds, 11 ounces. Ooh, she's as big as the other two combined pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> and she was born at 41 weeks. Because I decided to induce, I didn't feel comfortable personally going to 42 weeks just with everything we'd already been through. And I just didn't want to risk anything. And so I was induced with her, Pitocin, the whole thing, but I did it naturally until literally the transition stage when I was screaming for an epidural. And my wife is like, no, you can do this. You're so close. I'm like, give me the epidural. The epidural comes. And the minute it goes in, I'm like, this baby's coming out. I need to push. And within 15 minutes, she was out. Oh, wow. I don't even think that epidural was in my system at that point because I still felt everything. No. You're learning a lesson that I'm still trying to learn, which is just listen to your wife. Yeah. (laughs) You're so right about that one. That's a hard one to learn. We promised this episode was going to be about infant water safety. And... um, you had another experience, a family member of yours had an experience with water safety issue. I feel like that's what kind of triggered this for you, right? This shift. Yes. So back in 2014, Malin was six months old and we were at a family party at a pool. It was for my niece's two-year birthday. And my grandma's rule was always wear life jackets around the pool if you don't know how to swim. And prior to this, we had looked into swim lessons for Malin because swimming to me is very important. And I had seen this video of this little boy falling in the water and rolling to his back to float to save himself. And I'm like, that is so cool. I want those lessons for my children. We looked into them and we found out the price. And I'm like, oh my gosh, so expensive. I don't know if we should do it. Cut forward to 12 weeks later and we're at this family party. My sister's getting ready to sing happy birthday, brings up the cake. And she looks around. She's like, where's Charlotte, her four-year-old, my niece? We're all looking around. 
All of a sudden, my sister spots her face down in the pool. She jumps in, pulls her out. My wife, Taryn, and mom start doing CPR on her because we had just taken CPR because we had just had Malin. So I'm calling 911 with Malin in my arms, and it seems like 30 minutes go by. Nothing's happening. And I'm calling 911 again, and I said, I just called, but I don't hear them. What's taking so long? What's happening? And I will say this for anyone that has a cell phone, find out the nearest 911 number to put into your phone. If you dial 911 from your cell phone, it does not connect to the closest station. They have to farm it out basically. So from that point on, I found out from my city what the actual 911 number was so I could connect to them directly should anything happen. Mm -hmm. So as I was calling, I could hear the sirens. They come up. I turn around. She's starting to cough stuff up. They decide to move her because my grandma's kind of on a hill. They want her to, you know, get closer to the ambulance when they come. They come and pick her up. Basically, the doctor said if she were to have an IQ of 100, it would now be like 98. And she had no brain damage. It's amazing because she was blue and she took forever to resuscitate. So it's really, truly a miracle that she is still alive, especially now knowing what I know. I mean, water safety, you just never know. Personally, I've heard so many stories of the pool, of a tub, of a hot tub, so many stories. And then there's just water that accumulates anywhere and a flood could even do it. There are so many situations in which if you don't know how to survive in water, you can end up in a big problem really quickly. I want to learn more about the program that you do and the information that you have. We're going to be right back with Melissa Tag. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Melissa Tag, and we've got some very practical information about water safety for infants. Where do we start? So let me start by saying that drowning is a leading cause of death in children ages zero up to four years old. And there's a lot of parents that believe, well, my child can't get to water, so they're fine until, you know, they're one or two years old to have some lessons. That is not true. If your child can crawl or roll, they can get to a water source, whether it be a bathtub, a hot tub, a neighbor's pool, even if you don't have a pool. Like you had mentioned, it could happen in floods. You just never know when there's going to be that occasion that they could fall into something. They're not prepared to save themselves. That's where we come in. So the company is ISR, and that's Infant Swimming Resource. And after we had gone through that incident with my niece, Taryn and I looked at each other and we said, we don't care how much it costs, we're putting her in these lessons. We immediately reached out to the instructors and we had her in lessons that fall of 2014. And she learned how to roll onto her back and float. So the structure of these lessons is different than any other kind of lesson that you might go to once a week for 30 minutes. So these lessons are every day, Monday through Friday, 10 minutes per day. They are survival swim lessons. They are meant to teach your child that if they were to fall into water, they will be able to save themselves. So from ages six months up to however old, I know some instructors who teach adults, we will teach six months to 12 months old how to roll back to float, to get to their back to float and yell out and call out for whoever or cry until someone can come get them. And from 12 months and older, 
It just depends because 12 months could be too young. Depends on the skill set for the child. Every child is different. And the lessons are customized to that child, but they learn the swim, float, swim sequence. So they will swim for four seconds, rope to their back to float, and then continue to flip over and swim to the steps, the side of the pool, whatever it is to get out. And that is the main goal of these lessons. It's so important because so many parents that I get who contact me say they know someone or my child has been in these lessons for two years and we go once a week for 30 minutes and they haven't learned anything. And so it's a commitment. We tell parents it's a commitment to do these. It can go from anywhere for four weeks up to eight weeks, just again, depending on the child, because every child is different and some kids can go faster. Some kids take a little bit longer. What's the age range I'm teaching them? Like when can you start? So six months is the youngest. And I usually teach up until five years old is what I've done as the highest. But I always recommend parents because I get parents who have a lot of two and three-year-olds who don't know how to swim. And that's the age where curiosity kicks in. They want to try to swim. Some of them are fearless and they try to like, they're in the water with their parents and they're trying to get out of their arms and they don't know what to do after that. So the parents are coming to me saying, I'm so scared. They're going to just jump in one day and not know what to do. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's just so many different areas where you just turn your back for a second and they can find themselves in water trouble. It is always that second. And it's silent. Like when my niece went under, she even said, she's like, I tried screaming out and you don't hear it. You slip in and that's it. And the other big thing. She remembers falling in. It's weird, but yeah. And sometimes we don't know if it's because she's heard the story so many times. Oh, But it happened, I think she had said something to that effect, like right after the incident. So she wasn't even around anyone that was talking about it. The other big thing that I get from parents is the floaty question. Well, should I put my kid in floaties until they can get into lessons? Absolutely not. Puddle jumpers, floaties of any kind, you do not want your child in at any point because it puts them in a vertical position, which is what we call the drowning position. When they're in that position, they can't get horizontally on the water to swim, to get to safety or to float. Mm. So when I get a child that has been in floaties, they are more challenging because it's getting them from a vertical position to a horizontal position. And they also have that false sense of security. And that's what my niece had because she had been swimming, quote, swimming in a puddle jumper, some kind of floaty, and she thought she could swim. So when she had it off, she had taken it off. She went right into the water thinking she could swim and she couldn't. And that's what happens to a lot of kids who grow up with those. Wow. By the time you made this career shift, because you had talked about getting into events and taking a pay cut, but you worked your way up events. I worked my way up. I was the vice president of a company here in Los Angeles in events. And like I said, I thought it was something I was going to be doing for years. So what happened is after Adeline passed away, We took the time off and our bosses at the time allowed us to take that time off. Taryn works for Netflix and they are an amazing, amazing company. And she was able to take up to a year off if she wanted to grieve and to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives. And I had decided at that point, I couldn't go back to events. I just honestly couldn't go back to caring about people's weddings when I just lost a child. And I always thought when we had put Malin in these lessons that I would retire one day and I would become an instructor because I was that passionate about it. And cut to, you know, we lose Adeline and I realized, wait a minute, I should just do this now. Why not? This is something I'm passionate about. 
I want to save other people's kids. So might as well do it. And I had the time because I decided to quit my job of, you know, 13 years. What's the training like to become an instructor? So it's about a nine week training and you're in the water with master instructors for anywhere like five to six hours a day sometimes. And then it's a lot of reading and assessment testing. So you're writing essays, answering questions as to how you would work with a child. It's behavioral psychology in about nine weeks. So it's a lot, but you learn everything. And it's so fascinating to see it all play out. And I never get tired of teaching a child how to float. When I can just see like a seven-month-old in front of me floating, I think it's the coolest thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to picture where you even start with like a six-month-old or a seven-month-old. I had a hard enough time getting them to open the mouth so I can stick that baby mush in there. <laughs> and the biggest thing for us is the safety of the children. So that's why the lessons are 10 minutes a day. Because a lot of parents are like, well, can't we just do an extra 20 or 30? And we say, no, it has to be 10 minutes because we're putting them through challenging things and they're learning. So it's a big ask for parents to, you know, sign their kids up for this. But it's so important. It's so important. It's something that's preventative. And that's what gets me every time when I hear about a drowning. It's so preventative. Do you generally go to them to do it in their environment or do they come to you? I do offer private lessons where I go to someone's home to do it, but I generally prefer using a pool. I don't have a pool myself, so I have host families who will let me use their pool to host lessons for a couple hours a day. And the children come to me. They're one-on-one with me in the water. It's not like a group of kids that are hanging out on the side of the pool. So they're in the water with me for 10 minutes. Is there a place online where people can get more information about this type of water safety? Yeah, they can go to my website. It's www.socalisr.com. And my Instagram handle is at SoCalISR. And they can find me there too. And they can message me or DM me, call me, email me. That's a lot of ways to reach you. It's a lot of ways. <laughs> I am available. And of course, as you can imagine with this pandemic, it was a very different year this year. So I'm hoping and praying that by spring, I'm back in full session and able, you know, to take on all the kids I possibly can. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we don't normally talk exactly about when we're recording podcasts and they just kind of live up for a long time. But, you know, in case the world comes to an end in the next 10 days and you find this recording, It is the end of December 2020, the year that we will hopefully be the worst year in the history of my life. And it's almost over. I don't even usually stay up until midnight anymore. It's been a long time since we did that. But this year, I'm definitely planning up to stay past midnight. I want to be sure 100% that it because this is how I like to say it, that 2020 becomes hindsight because I'm looking forward to a great 2021 Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some really personal stories. I know that's not easy to do, and I know exactly why you do it, to help other people. And I know you will help other people. I sadly know several babies that came either very close or didn't make it after water drowning incidents. And so this is really, even personally, kind of near and dear to my heart from just personal stories. In our circles, we always teach kids to be water safe, but we never did it that young. And I didn't even realize you could do it that young. 
And so I learned that tonight from you. And I certainly, with all the mommies and babies running through my office, will make sure that they know as well. Please do. I always say I couldn't save my own daughter, but I can save other people's kids. So that is what I'm here to do. Yes. And I can only imagine that she is uh, smiling down and looking at the, the work you're doing in her name and the efforts and the joy that you bring into the world through her with the work that you're doing when you could have just been VP of events in a very different world. Thanks again. And at home, thanks for listening to Informed Pregnancy. If you like our program, share us with your friends, leave us some feedback in your podcast app. I do read all of them. Even the ones that are like one or two stars, they freak me out because I'm an anxious Jew, but I do look at them so I can learn from them. Constructive feedback is more than welcome. And you can find us on Instagram at Dr. Berlin. It's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N.